0: We'll be reading from Isaiah 49 now. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. We just read one of the servant songs in Isaiah 53. And here's another one in Isaiah 49, which is describing the work of Jesus Christ as he spreads salvation to the ends of the earth. Listen to Isaiah 49, we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on His word. Let's pray. Lord, we're coming to you to to hear from you, to be taught by you, and to be changed by you. We would pray that you would send your Holy Spirit so that we can see wonderful things from your law, and that as we see them, and as we see Christ, who is at the center of every part of Scripture, that as we see Christ our Savior, Lord, that we would love Him more and that we would serve Him better. We can only do this through Your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning our sermon comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Before I actually read the passage, I just want to remind us of where we've been in Colossians because we're we're reaching a turning point. Paul's starting to turn a corner in the book of Colossians. So, so far in Colossians, we've seen that Paul has thanked God for saving the Colossians and he's prayed for God to keep working in their lives. And then as Paul has thought about what God has done for the Colossians, he's immediately thought of Christ. And he has started to praise Christ for who Christ is and what He's done, especially in creating and in saving. That's part of what we saw last week, right? When we saw that Jesus Christ reconciles sinners. Well, now in our passage this morning, Paul begins to talk about his his own ministry. It's a ministry of serving God and proclaiming Christ. As we will see here, even as Paul talks about his own ministry... His focus really remains on Christ, not on himself, but on Christ. Paul continues to put Christ front and center because it is Christ that the Colossians and that we need. So that being said, let's look at the verses that we're going to be reading today. Verses 24 to 29. Are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So as we look at this passage, Jesus Christ is really the focus. Jesus is the center of this passage because Jesus is the center of Paul's ministry. Really, the main idea of what Paul is saying here is that Paul shows the greatness of Christ by describing the Christ-centered ministry that God has given him. Again, Paul is showing us the greatness of Christ and the way he does that is by describing the Christ-centered ministry that God has given him. Now, we'll see the greatness of Christ in three basic points as we look at Paul's ministry. We'll see the greatness of Christ in a ministry of Christ-like suffering, in verse 24. We'll see the greatness of Christ in a ministry of the mystery of Christ, in verses 25 to 27. And third and finally, we'll see the greatness of Christ in a ministry with Christ as the center and strength. So Paul begins to describe his own ministry, and he describes it as a ministry of Christ-like suffering. That's where he begins in verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, The church. If you hear those words and you're you're kind of wondering what, what Paul means, for instance, about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, you are not alone. People have had various ideas, and we'll get there. We'll get to see what that means. But let's start with what Paul says very clearly here in this opening verse, that Paul rejoices to suffer for the church. He says he rejoices to suffer for your sake. That means for the Colossians. But Paul also rejoices to suffer for the sake sake of the whole body, the entire church of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is suffering as an apostle, and that's important to see. If you notice, Paul actually talks about his role as an apostle. In verse 23 and 25, Paul says that God has appointed him As a minister. And what Paul has in mind is the role that God gave him to be an apostle. Paul is one of the apostles. One of those men that God himself appointed to be witnesses to the gospel and to lead the church in those early beginning years. If you remember, when, when God called Paul, God actually commissioned him to suffer as part of that special work. Acts 9. This is what God says Paul's mission is. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. That's his job. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So as an apostle... Paul is suffering for God, he is suffering for Christ, but Paul says here that he also suffers for Christ's church. That actually fits with being an apostle, because whatever Paul does is actually for the entire church. That's the uniqueness, actually, of the role of an apostle. Ephesians 2.20, Paul says it this way, he's talking about the church at Ephesus, he says, you are... Are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Again, he's underlining the fact that Paul and the other apostles had a unique foundational role in leading the church. So that means when Paul is suffering in proclaiming the gospel and leading the church, he is actually suffering for the entire church, not just a a local congregation or even a regional church, but for all of Christ's church. And as Paul suffers, he rejoices. He actually rejoices to suffer. Why does he rejoice? What is, what is good about suffering for the, for the gospel or suffering for Christ and his church? Well, Paul knows that God uses his suffering for the good of other believers. Paul knows, for instance, that God uses his suffer, suffering to bring salvation If you look at the the book of Acts and you look at what Paul actually does, he goes from city to city proclaiming the gospel. And in almost every single one, he suffers immensely. But that's how God builds the church through Paul. Because through his faithfulness in preaching and his faithfulness in suffering, people come to salvation and strong churches are built. So Paul knows that his suffering is used to bring salvation, but he also knows that his suffering leads to comfort and encouragement for others. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation." And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So what Paul experiences, the suffering and the comfort is useful for comforting other suffering believers. Salvation and comfort are just two examples of the real spiritual fruit that Paul's suffering leads to in the lives of other believers. And Paul rejoices. Paul rejoices because he knows that God is using his suffering for the good of others. Now so far what I've said, I hope, is clear. This is the clear part of what Paul says in this verse. And I want to use this clear teaching to understand what Paul says next. Paul writes, In my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. In those words, Paul is writing about his suffering as an apostle and about the connection between his suffering and Christ's own suffering. That's the basic idea. But let's let's be clear, because these verses or these words can be misunderstood. Let's be clear what Paul is not saying. When Paul says that there is something lacking in Christ's affliction, he does not mean that there is something lacking in Christ's suffering and death for our salvation. Christ did everything that was required to suffer and to die for our sins and to actually earn our salvation. There is nothing that you and I can do to gain salvation or to add to our salvation. So Paul is not saying that Christ uh, is lacking in salvation. But what Paul is saying is this, is that we actually participate in Christ's suffering. Because when we're united to him, we're actually conformed to his likeness. You see that in Romans 8. And that means that we are actually conformed to the likeness of a suffering Savior. So in that sense, and in that sense alone, there is something lacking in in Christ's affliction, until all of us have been fully conformed to our Savior and we all fully share in His afflictions. This is actually something that's throughout the New Testament. Peter says something very similar. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The point there is that Christ's body the church is made to look like Christ, who is our head. We share in his sufferings now when we suffer for his sake. And our suffering for Christ now leads to sharing in his glory, especially when he returns. Now The Bible is clear that we will all suffer for Christ's sake. All of us are involved in that suffering, but Paul as an apostle, has a unique role in suffering. We've already seen that Paul suffers actually for the entire church. So as an apostle, Paul has a particularly important role in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions as he suffers, as Paul suffers to proclaim the gospel and to lead the church. But how does Paul's suffering, his ministry of Christ like suffering, how does this show the greatness of Jesus Christ? Well, one way you see it is that Paul's entire ministry is cross-shaped. Everything that Paul does in his ministry is a way of reflecting his suffering Savior. It's true for Paul, but it's actually true for all of Christ's servants, that the greatness of Christ is seen in the suffering of his servants. One of the things that we see and we experience in our own life is the reality that our suffering, and especially our suffering in terms of persecution, our suffering is productive. Jesus Christ uses our suffering to build us and to build the church. Does that for our own good, our own maturity. As he teaches us important lessons, As he increases our faith. But he also uses our suffering to encourage others in our own congregation. And even as a witness to the lost of the power of Jesus Christ. There's a sense that each one of us, like Paul, were made to look like Jesus Christ, as we look more and more like him, are actually proclaiming the greatness of Jesus Christ. So Paul shows the greatness of Jesus Christ by looking at his own ministry, which is looking like the ministry of our suffering Savior. But the second way that Paul actually shows the greatness of Jesus Christ is by showing that God has given him a glorious message, and the glorious message is Christ. Now the way Paul describes it here in our second point is that he has a ministry of the mystery of Christ. You see that in verses 25 to 27. In verse 25, Paul describes his ministry this way I became a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, when Paul talks about that stewardship, that, that commission, or even that office, again, he's talking about his special role as an apostle. And Paul's task, his God-given task as an apostle, is to make the Word of God fully known. God gave Paul the task of proclaiming the gospel to everyone, both to Jews and to Gentiles. We saw that already in Acts chapter 9. And that's the sense of the Word of God being fulfilled or made, made fully known when it's proclaimed both to Jews and to Gentiles. Because now in the New Testament, the gospel is freely proclaimed to everyone. Paul describes that word of God that he's proclaiming. That word of God, the gospel, he describes it as a mystery. A mystery which God has hidden for ages and generations, but has now revealed to his saints. As you look just a little bit further, you see that the mystery is really just, just one word. It's one person. The mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ, his person and his work. Now, when you and I think about mystery, we, we might think of a, a mystery novel. I like Agatha Christie, for instance. and I love those, those mystery novels Agatha Christie where there's Hercule Poirot. Can't say it properly, but there's that detective And he's trying to solve a mystery. It's complicated, but he's able to do it because he's so smart. That's how we often think about a mystery. But that's not how the Bible uses that word. That's not what Paul means. Paul uses mystery here and in other places in his letters to talk about something that no person could ever figure out. God alone is the one who's able to reveal the mystery to us. And that's exactly what Paul says has happened. that that mystery of Christ God has revealed to his saints. But how is Christ how is Christ a mystery? Because I, I thought in the Old Testament that the Old Testament believers didn't they have sacrifices that pointed to Christ? Yeah, they did. Didn't they have prophecies about Christ? Weren't they saved by believing in Christ? You know, the answer to all of those is yes, a resounding yes. What well, God revealed in the Old Testament about Christ was a lot. But so much about Christ and His work was still hidden or unclear even to Old Testament believers. Let me give you an example. What did it mean for Christ to be Emmanuel, God with us, what would that mean? What would that look like? Nobody in the Old Testament knew exactly what that would look like. They knew it was true, but they didn't quite know. But the Old Testament believers, they had way more than the Old Testament Gentiles, didn't they? The Gentiles had no knowledge of God at all. You know, for the Old Testament believers, it's like they were in a room you know, with the lights kind of dim. They, they could see the truth about Christ. But for Old Testament Gentiles, those outside of the church, they were in pitch black darkness. They knew nothing of Jesus Christ. But now, this is important for Paul and it's important for us, but now, after Christ's coming, God has revealed the truth about Jesus to Jews and especially to Gentiles. God has turned that light switch all the way on. And Christ, in all His glory, is in full view for everyone. Practical application? You and I wouldn't be sitting here if that weren't true. Each one of us is living in the New Testament as a Gentile, as one that God has revealed the gospel to. Paul describes this as a mystery, and the mystery is Christ, but Paul's actually more specific about it. He says... That the mystery is not just Christ, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul is describing an absolutely amazing reality. For a believer, for a believer, Christ is within us. Christ is really within us. And his presence within us is the reason that we have hope for glory. Christ is within us by faith through the Holy Spirit. We actually see that in Romans chapter 8. Paul says there, in Romans 8, that Christ is in you and that the Spirit of Christ, he describes him as the Spirit of Christ, dwells in you. So it's, it's right for us to say that Christ himself is in heaven, but he is also present with us through his Spirit who dwells in us. And Paul says, if we have Christ and we do, then we have the beginning of eternal life because now Christ and all His benefits are ours. And they're not ours somewhere out there. They are ours right here inside of us. That is the hope of glory that Paul talks about. We have the first taste of eternal glory now in Christ. And that first taste, that down payment, gives us assurance of our place in glory in our place in in heaven. I just said a few minutes ago that some things in the Old Testament weren't always as clear, like Jesus being Emmanuel, the Son of God, who is actually with us. But what we see from Paul here is that Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel because he was truly human and he lived among us, but he's Emmanuel in even a deeper sense. He is God with us. Because he indwells us by his Spirit. Do you begin to see why Paul describes this reality as the riches of the glory of this mystery? Paul is piling up words to describe how amazing this is. The riches, really the abundance of the glory of the fact that Christ is within us. It is abundantly glorious, way beyond what we can really comprehend. And it is so glorious because it is God Himself in Christ who is with us. Christ, who is God of the universe, who made everything, chooses to live in us. His limited creatures. And Christ, who is holy and perfect and our Savior, chooses to live in his people, in us, who still have indwelling sin, who still sin against him. And because Christ chooses to do that, because Christ chooses to dwell in us, we have every reason to trust that we will live with him forever. That is God's grace on full display in our lives. Paul loves to proclaim this truth. He loves to proclaim this message because this message is worth proclaiming. And that's actually where Paul goes to in this passage. He shows the greatness of Christ by proclaiming Him. That's what we see in our third and final point, that Paul's ministry is centered and strengthened by Christ. Verses 28-29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know, the content of Paul's message is very simple. It is Christ. If you heard any sermon by Paul or you sat in on any Sunday school class or you went along to one of his Bible studies, every single one would be about Christ. And it would not be about Christ kind of sneaking him in somehow. No, Christ is the center of Paul's proclamation. Paul proclaims Christ, the perfect Savior, that you and I as sinners desperately need. He proclaims Christ as the righteousness of God, who pays for our sins and obeys so that we now can be counted as righteous. Paul proclaims Christ as the one that each one of us must believe in, in order to be saved. And Paul says so much more because he presents Christ in his fullness. Notice that he says he proclaims Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone. Those two actions of warning and teaching, they are describing a lot of work. He is warning believers to stay away from sin. And he is teaching them more and more and more about Christ, who he is, what he's done in salvation, and what he is doing in their lives now. For Paul, proclaiming Christ is not just preaching an evangelistic sermon. Proclaiming Christ includes that, but proclaiming Christ is really the sum total of Paul's ministry. And proclaiming Christ should be the sum total of of any faithful ministry. It's easy, though, to get sidetracked or even misled. Sometimes ministers and congregations can be sidetracked by something that's important, but it isn't Christ. You know, I think of the way sometimes politics is used in churches today, where it's even proclaimed from the pulpit. Whether those churches are conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. If politics or anything else is taking the place of Christ, then that is not a faithful ministry. So sometimes churches are sidetracked. Sometimes pastors and churches are simply misled. They're being led astray by a false gospel. But we are called, and I include myself in this, we are called, as a minister, I am called to proclaim Christ. And you are called as a member of the church to seek a ministry which proclaims Christ. That and that alone is a faithful ministry. But what is the goal? What is the goal of proclaiming Christ? Why is it so important? Well, here's the goal of Paul's ministry. He says I do this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now we saw last week that that, that idea of presenting, presenting someone is really looking ahead to the final judgment when we will all stand before Christ. And Paul's time frame, what what Paul is doing now in the present, he always has that as the final goal. He always has that time, that place, and that thing as his goal when he will bring people to stand in the presence of Christ. And Paul's goal, when believers that he has worked with, when believers that he has worked with stand before Christ, his goal is that they would be mature, His goal is Christian maturity at the final judgment. Some of us could say, well, that's true, but isn't that kind of included in glorification? I mean, when we get there, God's going to make us perfect, so why do I have to do anything now? But Paul says that goal at the end drives your desire and his desire for Christian maturity. We looked at Ephesians 4 in Sunday school, and I'm going to go right back to it now. Christ himself has given us leaders, why? To equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is what we're doing now, is growing up into Christ. I'm just going to ask a simple question then. Do you, do you honestly want to be mature in Christ? Do you share Paul's goal for you? More than that, do you share Christ's goal for you to grow in maturity? If we're honest, sometimes we do. We have good moments, and we have a lot of bad moments, right? Sometimes we have good moments where we want to be mature. We're fighting hard. We're fighting against sin. We want to be in the Word. We want to be praying. And other times, we're just kind of content to sit back and and grow later. But let me encourage you with the same point that Paul proclaims. Christ is worth everything. Being like Christ is the highest goal that you and I can ever have. And that goal is going to drive every single thing that we do. That's the goal. But that goal, that life-consuming, life-directing goal is impossible. It's impossible by ourselves. You know what? All ministry, anything that I'm doing, and actually all the Christian life, anything that you and I are doing, any of this is absolutely impossible by ourselves. Absolutely impossible. Each one of us needs the power of Christ. And that's where Paul ends this passage. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is toiling and struggling. Those are very strong words. Paul is working very hard to preach, to teach, to warn, and to pray for believers so that they are growing in Christian maturity. But it's even more than just what Paul does. Think about the emotional and the spiritual energy that he is investing in all of these believers. He he shares in their joys, and he sorrows at their setbacks. This is exhausting work that Paul is doing. And here's the good news. The truth, actually, that Paul experiences on a day-by-day basis, moment-by-moment, Christ is the one who gives Paul's strength. It is actually Christ's own strength which he works in us that's going to make us able to do any of these things. And just think about the greatness of Christ's strength. Paul has just shown how amazing Christ is, everything that he's done. And now Paul essentially says that Christ uses his same power which, which created everything and reconciled everything to give Paul and to give you and I the strength to do his work. Without that kind of grace, without that kind of provision, without that kind of love, we would be absolutely lost in serving God. But Christ himself knows what we need. And moment by moment, he's giving us the power to obey him and to serve him. Just a a few brief words of application this morning. Just an encouragement. See the greatness of Christ who is in us. I said that that reality, the reality of Him inside of us is the greatest reality we have. And that goal of serving Christ and growing up into Him is the greatest goal we can have. Think about this. We have a Savior who is always with us no matter what. Never think that Christ is somehow far off. We're tempted to think that, that Christ stands at a distance because he's way up in heaven. He doesn't know what it's like to be down here. But no, that's not what Paul says here. Paul says Christ is always present. He is always engaged. He is always supporting. He is always interceding for us. So the encouragement is take comfort, especially in hard times. Take comfort in his constant, powerful presence. And you know what? Christ's presence with you. I said it before, but Christ's presence guarantees your salvation. He, he guarantees your salvation because He is powerfully present with us. You know, He guarantees that we're going to look like Him because He's actually with us. Think, of it, think about a set of blueprints. You've seen houses and you see the plan laid out there feels like sometimes you've got to work to build that house. That's how it normally works, right? But with Christ, as He makes us like Himself, He actually is taking those blueprints Himself and fitting them onto us. He is powerfully present with us to make us like Himself. That's part of His presence for it, His presence with us. But also remember that because He is with us, it's not just that we look like Him, but that we're going to be with Him. Heaven is guaranteed Because he is here. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, he knows what it's like to be suffering. He knows what that's like because he is our suffering Savior. But now as he's present with you, he is not just present as a suffering Savior. He is present as a glorified and reigning Savior. He is a gracious, kind, loving, and powerful Savior. That is who he is, right now, inside of each one of us, and what he is doing as he calls us to serve him and even to suffer for him, he says he is going to bring our sin and our suffering to an end as we're made like him, and one day soon we will be with him forever in heaven. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, it is impossible for us to fully understand how great Jesus Christ really is. We can see what Paul says here about the greatness of Jesus Christ and the way that he uses us in his church. Lord, but we still fall so far short in our understanding and in our praise. Lord, we would pray that as you make us more mature in Christ, that we would see who he really is and what he's really done and more and more love him and serve him in every part of our being. Thank you for that sure promise of heaven and the sure help that you have given us in Christ for our life now. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.